Welcome to Rhyme and Reason, hosted by Dr. Barry. Today, Barry welcomes addiction professional and author, Gary Kay. And now, here's Dr. Barry Ryman. Zach. Dr. Barry Ryman. Zach, today is a really special day. How so? How so, Dr. Barry? Well, we have a, you know, aside from our guest who's coming on, but today you celebrate six years in a row, weekends, nights included. Yeah. Six years of sobriety. Today's your anniversary. Can we get, uh, I don't know if our producer can give us a, some applause. I don't know. I don't know if we're that we're that uh, technical that, yet. Not, but... you know, yeah. <laughs> that's how do you how do you feel? Like uh, you know, grateful, Gra- over you know, over overflowing with gratitude. How long did it take you to get six years? Well, um, let's see. From 14 to 42, so, yeah, what is that? 24. Thank you. 14, 24, 34, 44, 28 years? Yeah, yeah. I think I did the math right. I, I had to use my it fingers. Sounds good. It sounds good. <laughs> yeah, so it was, a, it was a nice little winding road up there. Not so nice, not so nice. Who am I kidding? <laughs> that's so nice. Yeah. Listen, you made it. That's incredible. Um, six years is a really long time. And I was always yeah. the one in uh, you know, voted in the mo- many, many countless rehabs, the one that's not gonna make it. Even my last one. You know, that's interesting that you bring that up. <clears throat> and you know, there's a term, and I'm I'm sure once we bring our guest on, he's gonna be familiar with this term too chronic relapser and i hate that term right because you know we talk about something called a self-fulfilling prophecy and the messages that we're given we internalize we believe and then we become and so when somebody's labeled a chronic relapser what do we expect of them right to relapse and it's the same thing that they expect of themselves right so I was looking at, you know, the concept of, you know, the the term chronic relapser and what it really means is that person just hasn't surrendered yet. You know, it's not about you got to be in recovery to relapse, right? You have mm-hmm. to have some sustained recovery to relapse. And this is a chronic relapsing disease uh, when we're stuck in the throes of it. But once we surrender and we turn over that new leaf, we have a shot to do anything. Yeah, it's interesting that you said that because every time I've had a little, you know, little stints here of not using, it was never in recovery. It was just abstinence. So there was never any healing. And even even, uh, in these past six years, I, I would say that I didn't really surrender until three years in, Hmm. you know. Not at that it, it was different than the other times I had. Uh, I was willing those first three years, but I don't think that I really surrendered until about three years into my recovery this time. Was there something at that three-year mark that 
you know, was kind of the turning point for you? What did you hit a bottom in recovery? I hit a bottom in recovery. And I had gotten to the point uh, with my using that it just wasn't even, you know, I know what people say it wasn't an option, but it really was not an option. There was, no, you know, it wasn't, that wasn't a thought in my mind. It was just, I am so miserable in recovery. And I, I made the choice to turn it over finally. That, that's amazing. You know, Janice is chiming in, talk more about the distinction between abstinence and recovery. And what a perfect segue here, because you mm -hmm. were just talking about that, right? What we learn in recovery, and there's multiple pathways, but as far as the 12 steps go, and, you know, Gary, who we're going to bring on, I'm sure is going to talk a lot about this. But the way I was taught, each one of the steps have at least one spiritual principle behind it, right? Step one has honesty, you know, step two, hope, step three, faith, right? And if we learn to live these principles in our affairs, then we are actually living in recovery, right? The right. drugs, you take the drugs away, you still have the same person. The alcohol, you take the alcohol away, you have the term dry drunk, right? We don't have a drug or alcohol problem. We have a living problem, right? The drugs and alcohol are a symptom of a disease. And once we start to work some of these principles into our lives, the way we think and our behaviors coincide, they start to coincide and we start to live a better way of life. Do you agree with that? A hundred percent, because I, I know when prior to, you know, really surrendering without the drugs and alcohol, I almost became a worse version of myself because I didn't have the drugs and alcohol. So I had all the other vices that were on steroids at this point my feelings are coming back i don't want to feel them i'm not going to drugs and alcohol so everything else is amplified yeah i mean recovery in itself is a life altering event right we talked about you having six years i'm coming up on 26 years in june gary who's coming on is going to have 26 years in august you don't stay in recovery. You don't live this life if you're not happy, right? And and a lot of people look at getting clean or getting sober as a death sentence. Uh, we're no longer going to have fun. Our life is going to suck. You know, we're not going to know how to behave. We're not going to know how to do anything because you're taking away our security blanket. If recovery really sucked and it was really that hard to do, millions upon millions of people would not be recovering today. Very true. You know, and and yeah. that's that's the way I like to look at it. All right. So before we bring Gary on, I'm starting this tradition on this show that we do the joke of the day. All right. So all right, I'm going to put you to the test on this one. These are all dad jokes for the most part. This one's going to have a little twist. What do you call a deer that can't see? Once again, you stumped me, Barry. No idea. <laughs> what do you call a deer that can't see and can't move? You know, I'm just not with it today. Come on. Still no idea. Oh, zing. What do you call a deer that can't see, can't move, and can't have sex? Come on, I want someone to 
get with me in the comments with i don't know still no fucking idea let's no. go <laughs> so i said the, the kid part is not you know appropriate for this all right so with that being said we are going to bring on this week's guest um gary k he is a hazelden author 12-step historian and recovery advocate as mentioned before, he's been sober for nearly 26 years. He's known well within the community nationwide. He has a documentary that's going to be premiering tomorrow um, in Del Rey at the Movies of Del Rey. And he was featured in the show Dope Sick Nation. Let's bring on Gary Kay. Hello there. Thank you. Those are great, <laughs> those are great dad jokes. <laughs> Did you like that? Don't yeah. encourage him, Gary. Yeah. Don't encourage him. No, those you know, were amazing we, dad jokes. You know, if you tune in, Gary, to further episodes, you're going to hear my whole repertoire of different jokes that I have. I mean, I'll, I'll definitely know. do that. And, and I don't know if you agree, but for me, <laughs> humor is medicine. Okay. And whether sure. something's really corny, super goofy, really raunchy, I don't care. You know, if it makes me laugh, like to me, that is medicine. And so I don't know how the audience feels about that, but I think humor is, you know, an essential part of recovery. I got clean at 20 years old. And my biggest fear when I went to treatment is that my life was over and I was no longer going to have fun. And I don't know if you can relate to that. Um, I'm assuming you look pretty young, too. Um, so I'm assuming you got clean pretty young and I was you know, 30, so, I was 35 when I got clean, when I finally got 30. clean, it took okay. me about 10 more years. Math, more math for you, Barry. It 35, took about 10 years. 45, 55. So he's about, he's going to be 60 or 61 years old. Uh, yeah. 61. I'm 61. There we go. Okay. So my math skills are on point today. <laughs> and so, but I'm saying, you know, as even at 30 years old and 30 in real life is young, right? Did you have those thoughts? when you surrendered that you were no longer going to be able to have fun or what was your take? I know everybody's different. You know, I don't, honestly, I don't recall thinking that way. I was so incredibly beaten up that uh, I just wanted the pain to go away. I didn't mm -hmm. care what, I never even thought about what's going to happen after that. I just want this pain to go away. You know, that was it. And um, it had to go away. It was that or die. I tried to kill myself a bunch of times. Did I you? I went to 47 detoxes. I went to, uh, I did Gestalt therapy, Jungian therapy, Freudian therapy, psychodynamics, a couple of Anthony Robbins firewalks, uh, <laughs> uh, puke and purge, uh, everything under the sun. I went to treatment 19 times and I had about seven suicide attempts. Wow. And, uh, I was just like, this just has to stop. That is the one thing that I'm good you weren't successful at. It was, thank you. Me too. Right? I mean, <laughs> the last time God intervened, no doubt about it. And uh, why, why don't you tell us about that last time? What does that look like? Oh my God. I had tried to rob some drug dealers and uh, they took baseball bats to me. And I had a broken sternum and ribs and jaw and, uh, very cut up. They put a bunch of crack pipes in my mouth, beat me in the face. Um, my teeth were smashed out. It was horrific. And um, 
I made it back to my apartment. I was living in New York City. I lived in New York from 1978 until seven years ago when I came down to Florida. And I lived in Times Square. And um, I made it back to my apartment. And I thought I had a bag of morphine, IV drip morphine in the vegetable bin in my refrigerator and nothing was in there. And I hadn't eaten in a long time. I looked like I'd just come out of, you know, a concentration camp. I really, I looked like a combination of uh, Mel Gibson, Gary Busey, Nick Nolte and Charles Manson, if all on a very bad day. And um, there was nothing in the refrigerator except a carton of milk. And I was very, I was starving. And I downed it, and it was spoiled, and I vomited into the sink. And there was a lot of amber liquid and little white lumps of curdled milk, and I lapped up my vomit and spit those lumps out in my psychotic uh, drug-fueled head. I thought those were lumps of crack cocaine, and I tried to smoke my vomit. And when I wasn't able to do that, I cut my wrists and under my arms and my elbows. Uh, I had a mason jar full of Vicodin. Um, that I save as a suicide kit, and I swallowed those. I, I found um, about a half a bottle of Jack Daniels, and I guzzled that and laid down a pool of blood and waited to die, and uh, God intervened, and I had a moment of clarity and crawled to the phone and called a friend of mine who I hadn't spoken to in a long time. He had actually never been to my apartment, didn't know where I lived, and uh, he called information and got my mother in Ohio. And it turns out I lived, you know, like a block away from him in New York City. Wow. And, uh, and he rescued me. And that started all my trips to treatment. And, and then I was in and out of treatment. I'd walk out the door and I'd get high within an hour, just immediately. The first thing I did. And that happened 19 times. And uh, the last time there were two elderly gentlemen who were great friends and uh, pioneers of the AA program. And they met me at the door of the treatment center. I had met them when I was in treatment. They always brought H&I meetings into the treatment center and um, got to know them pretty well. And they rode the train back to New York City. I was in treatment um, out in uh, outside of Princeton, New Jersey. And they rode the train back to New York City with me and held my hand and uh, I moved in with one of them who was an elderly priest. And uh, they both, they co-sponsored me, which is old school AA. Everybody had two sponsors. Mm. That was, that's how the pioneers did it. Now one, is too, one is too many and a thousand is never enough. <laughs> and that was great. And they co-sponsored me. It was kind of like good cop, bad cop. And they took me through the steps the way the, uh, the first 100 did it. Um, Mel was AA's historian and editor of the Grapevine magazine and a great pal of Bill Wilson and a traveling companion of his. And the other gentleman, his father was one of the first 87 members of AA. And uh, he had been brought into the program by Hank Parkhurst and, and uh, worked steps and did the work with Bill W. and Hank Parkhurst. And uh, they were just amazed, amazing old guys. And they co-sponsored me for 23 years until they both died about three years ago. Hmm. And uh, so that was that my last night. That was my, each time I got high when I walked out of treatment, it was very short. I get high, I go right back. 
I mean, the next day, I go right back. I just kept doing that. And they kept letting me come back. And uh, Was that uh, August of 1996? Well, um, that was actually in uh, March, April, May. Let's see. May, June, July. June, July, August. Yes, it was. Um, that was in June. And... In New York, at a lot of meetings, you do a day count every day. You raise your hand. You say, I have one day, two days, three days. And I was doing my day counting, and um, I was living with one of my sponsors uh, for a long time, for a couple of years I did. And uh, he wouldn't let me out of his sight, or some guy from AA had to meet me at the door. I was, he, he told me, whatever happens in New York City, when the sun goes down, is none of your damn business, and you're not allowed outside alone without adult supervision. And I was I was 35, and and um, so they escorted me everywhere except Monday through Friday to go to my home group, which was just down the street. He would let me walk around after dinner on my own, and he always gave me three dollars to get coffee after the meeting. And I would run to 49th Street and buy a joint, and I would sit on the steps and smoke a joint, and uh, and then go to my meeting. And the person who was chairing the meeting um, lived in the brownstone where I was buying the the marijuana right on the street there and saw me doing this and told people in the meetings that you know, like I gets high every night, but nobody said anything to me. And then on my 90th day, they were going to have a little 90 day celebration. They had balloons and a cake. And I felt just so much remorse and shame. And when they read from chapter five, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Um, and they read the line, they seem to have been born that way, constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. And I burst into tears and I, I confessed. And so we changed my sobriety date. And so that was the last time I used drugs and alcohol. What was that date? August what? August 25th, 1996. Very nice. Yeah. All right. Yeah, and I love what you were talking about earlier. Um, about three years ago, um, Someone very close to me died. Both of my sponsors died. A friend committed suicide. Um, I was in such grief, and I really didn't understand. The, the last couple of years of my sponsors' lives, they were in their 90s, so we weren't really formally doing any work and, other than talking on the phone. And um, I'm teaching the steps, and I wasn't working them. I was leaving out. wasn't really doing step 10, four through nine all the time. You know, I wasn't doing that. And I had developed enormous resentments and uh, this festered and festered. COVID hit. Um, I almost got high. I was on my way to New York City from Florida in my car to buy crack. And God again intervened. And um, I, I went into such emotional pain. It's a miracle that I haven't picked up drugs and alcohol. But um, this this was something that really came to a head recently for me. I didn't even realize that I was depressed, that I had this unresolved grief and trauma. I had no idea. And it finally really came to a head. All the bedevilments came back, trouble with personal relationships, prey to misery and depression, couldn't be of real help to other people. I was still working and doing what I'm supposed to do. I put my game face on. And um, I know that I would have relapsed, except... I dove back into it. I'm back in therapy, doing trauma treatment, restarted the steps. I'm back on, I just finished uh, fourth step and getting ready to do my fifth step uh, on next Monday. And um, thank God we have these tools, you know? 
So I've experienced that. I recently hit a bottom in recovery, just like what you were talking about at three years. You had that. I just had one at 25 years. And uh, man, this is a lifetime deal. But thank God we have this medicine and this we, way of living, you know. You, you know, we, we hear often uh, from people that don't, I, I, I don't want to say they don't really understand the disease of addiction. Um, but, you know, I've heard over time, like, doesn't it ever just go away? Can't no. you ever just live normally? Can't Absolutely you? Absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and I'll tell you, okay, after all this time, the isms are still there, right? Mm -hmm. Every once in a while, they pop out, right? Because we have things that come up in life. And, and there's ways to get, quote, unquote, high in recovery without picking up a substance. Absolutely. And I'm not sure if that's talked about enough, right? I mean, we have, there's other things and, you know, it don't have to be mentioned. It could be anything that causes us unmanageability. And yes. I feel like, and I can, I can speak from myself, is it's like that carnival game, right? And, and this came to light when I was on my six and seven step looking at defects of character, right? And there's that carnival game that they have the mallet that you hit one down and then whack another one pops up. Whack-a-mole, that's what whack -a -mole, it was. Whack-a-mole, yeah. Right? <laughs> And it's exhausting sometimes. Yes, it is. It's exhausting really trying to keep those moles at bay, right? For me, and what then, happened, my personality at home unraveled, and I became addicted to a sick addict. Um, not somebody using. I, what, what part of my solution now is I'm, I'm in Al-Anon for the first time in my life. I didn't realize that I was suffering from codependency. Codependency. And got as sick as I was on drugs, emotionally, you know, psychically. What are they doing? What are they thinking? You know, just all of that, trying to micromanage and trying to, addicted to fixing people, you know. And I had no idea that was happening to me. So Was this a significant other? No, no, it wasn't. It was a friend. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, I bring that up too because... We get these, you know, they, there's an old saying, addicts don't get into relationships, they take hostages. Right, right. right? Well, Have I did heard? that. Yeah, I did Have that. You? I took a hostage. I tried to right? fix somebody. Have you heard that before? So, yeah. you know, and, and, you know, they say in the NA program, there's one thing more than anything else that will defeat us in our recovery. This is an attitude of indifference or intolerance towards spiritual principles. Three of these that are open-minded, Three of these that are indispensable are open-mindedness, honesty, and willingness, right? But when they say as a joke, there's one thing more than anything else that will defeat us in our recovery, and everyone yells out, relationships, <laughs> right? You know, comedian Mark Lundholm, he calls of course. it, uh, he said, isn't it something that relationships sounds like relapse and shit? <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, so... He's uh he he Mark is a great guy and he talks yes. about the little voices in his head and the little kid that goes, wee yeah right all right so let me ask you, um you are currently doing a twelve step immersion program yes. through Comprehensive Wellness Center can you tell yes. us a little bit about that Yes I'd love to that that's it's uh, a joy and my great joy in my life. I am a 12-step historian, so 
what we do, uh, patients who are engaged and interested in doing it, um, we have, we have uh, step groups that meet uh, twice a week, usually for it takes about a month, sometimes a little bit longer. And we're together about six hours a day. And we go through the big book and break it down like a textbook, which is what it is. And um, also I use about 400 photographs and a lot of memorabilia and artifacts that I have in my collection. And uh, we start with where the spiritual solution came from in 161 AD from Marcus Aurelius, Spiritus Contra Spiritum, how that reached uh, eventually the Washingtonians in the 1840s and then uh, how it eventually made it, the solution made its way to Carl Jung and the incredible story of Roland Hazard and his journey of finding Jung and back and forth across the ocean, uh, learning that he needed this spiritual solution. So I teach the history along with actually taking them through the steps and we use the step method that was used by Dr. Bob uh, to take people through the steps quickly and often. As how quickly? How quickly do people make it through the steps? I mean, I'm just going to speak, and I know that, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I grew up on NA. Okay, so NA has been where I got clean, where I've been, and and where I've done my recovery. My sponsor mm -hmm. is an NA sponsor. He's been my sponsor since the day I got clean. I still have him in my life. We still talk um, close to every day, and. Um, the, the process that I went through to go through the steps, I think it took me about two years mm. to make it from one to 12. And then wow. I have been in the treatment industry now for about 15 years, right? So I'm, I'm well immersed when it comes to the differences between the step processes in AA versus NA. And I remember speaking to somebody, I think they had like, four months sober and they had already been through the steps and they're already sponsoring six people. And to me, that was mind blowing, right? I know at four months sober, I could barely tie my shoes, let alone, you know, guide others through the steps and, and, and be a sponsor. Can you talk a little bit about the differences on, on, you know, the speed that you guys go through? Because <laughs> it seems accelerated. Right. Well, um, at, at Conference Wellness Center, what I'm teaching are the roots of 12-step recovery, our origin, how the founders worked the steps, how the first 100 did the steps. That's what I'm teaching so that they understand what that method was and how this thing started and where it came from. And um, on page 12 to 14 in the big book, uh, Bill writes about his friend, Ebby Thatcher, comes to his hospital bed and takes him through the steps in one afternoon while he's in the hospital, uh, the actual, what, what became the steps? Um, they were the six spiritual procedures of the Oxford group. And then Bill left the hospital, joined the Oxford group, started working with drunks and continued to work these procedures in his life, what they called quickly and often, quickly and often, often is the key word there. And on page 14, Bill admonishes us that if we don't start working with others as Ebby worked with him, that we won't survive. And basically, old school AA, they did. Dr. Bob uh, had his first sponsee, Billy Dotson. 
uh, when he had uh, 26 days sober. Bill had five months. Uh, Bob became really his first. Um, and then shortly after that, Hank Parkhurst. Bill had five months. He would have had sponsees sooner, but he was chasing drunks all over New York City and preaching at them, telling them what was wrong with them. And they were all saying, get away from me. And uh, Dr. Bob was the first person who followed Dr. Silkworth's advice. And, and um, instead of telling them what they had to do, talked about what he went through. And that got through to Dr. Bob. So in, um, so let me ask you this, yeah. and not to be controversial or anything like that. Yes. And this just dawned on me now because I didn't know this history, but did Dr. Bill, you know, become Dr. Bob's sponsor because it was only Dr. Bill who was there. Well, yeah, at that Dr. time. Dr. Bob, yeah, you that's know, for sure. mm -hmm. right? And then Bob became, you know, had his first sponsee, a 26-day sober, whatever you that's just said, right. because there were only two other people there. So right, it right. was like kind of the blind leading the blind. That's, that's or, true. So have we taken that concept of having 26 days sober as being okay to sponsor and guide another person? Is that still how it's viewed today? Yes and no. Some people, yes. Some people, no. There are people that go, oh my God, that's insane. Um, an another thing I want to point out uh in the big book, in the introduction of Dr. Bob's Nightmare, it tells us that between June 10th, when he took his last drink, uh, June 10th, 1935, and November 1950, which was when he died, he took 5,000 men and women through the steps in 15 years. If you get out a calculator, that's 333 people per year. And then if you read um, the story in the back of the book by Earl Treat, Earl started the first 12-step meeting in Chicago, and he got sober in Akron. Dr. Bob helped him get sober, and Earl describes in the story, he sold himself short. It's on page 263. Uh, that You'll find the description of, um, he said, Dr. Bob invited me. He had the day off, and he invited me to his office, and we spent four hours formally going through the STEP program. Wow. And he describes how they did that. Doc, here's a quote from Dr. Bob. Dr. Bob said the 12 steps are not spiritual philosophies to be studied, understood, and then taken. They are survival actions to be carried out immediately to provide instant hope and relief and save our lives. They are a tourniquet to stop the bleeding now. It is battlefield triage. That's how they thought about it. That's how all the pioneers did it. And we can look back historically and see that when we had an efficacy rate of 50 to 75% permanent sobriety. That's how they were doing the steps. And, and, and it was imperative that they turn around and, um, oh, hi, Cindy. That was imperative that they turn around and start giving it to other people. Now, are you? I had my first sponsee when I was at 30 days. And I'll tell you what, I was a better sponsor then than I was the last two years. There's, there's no doubt about it. I was on fire. And of course, Everybody had two sponsors, so my, my sponsors were also co-sponsoring my sponsees. And they had a lot of time. And, um, you know, I was it was described to me this way. Let's say I'm a master carpenter and you want to be my journeyman apprentice. And I go out and buy you $10,000 worth of state-of-the-art tools. And I say, don't touch these for a year. And you're just going to watch me make amazing things. And then a year, you're going to open your toolbox. You're still not going to know how to be a carpenter because you've never touched the tools and, and you don't know how to use them. That's, that's the old school, how they thought about it. And, and I like that. We had a very high success rate. 
As a matter of fact, N.A. used the big book and used that same quickly and often method from 1953 until the 1980s when the basic text was written. And in both programs today, AA and NA, the efficacy rate is very low. It's less than 10%. And, and NA, like AA, neck and neck had a 50 to 75% success rate when they were doing the steps quickly and often. And, and I think there's a profound reason for that. The um, This whole dry drunk thing. When I stop living in the spiritual solution, I'm not treating my prefrontal cortex. And I'm living in my midbrain. And my amygdala is running the show, and that's when I become a dry drunk and in my animal brain. And if I'm not really processing these resentments, helping other people, unselfish acts of altruism, um, spiritual pursuits, any kind of God contemplation, prayer, meditation, Helping other people profoundly changes the neurological activity in the cortex, and and that's one of the one of the um, neurological benefits of doing the steps. So there are a lot of people that see that are concerned that working the steps slowly has really negatively impacted on our efficacy rate, and we have incredible amount of relapse happening. So what do we say? People what do we say? Step four, they never get solution. Four through nine is what removes the blockage and gives us relief from what we're suffering from. And, and we can't really get to our solution until we remove the blockage. So if I take a year to do the steps, I would think, I don't know, because my experience, I did them quickly and often, you know, and you just do them constantly. You know, I did, I don't know, four or four steps within 90 days. That's old school, how these old pioneers did it and you know and you just kept kept digging and cleaning and digging and cleaning and uh moving forward doing them quickly and often was the mantra and the what, what do we say what do we say to any viewers who might be in the audience right now or anybody who might download this podcast on a on a road trip in three days from now and, you know, they are some of the few, and, and I know you've heard this before, and Zach, I'm sure you've heard this before, and I have heard this a bunch. AA and NA just doesn't work for me. What do you, what do you say to those people, right? Is it, are there people who literally just don't benefit from the 12-step program, but, you know, another path is better for them? Or what's your thought on that? Wow, that's what a loaded baked potato that question is. My gosh, uh... Welcome to Rhyme and Reason. That's, that's a great question. <laughs> hmm. Um, yeah, we could do a little role play, Gary. Like, you know, uh, oh, I've been, you know, in and out of the rooms and I can't manage to put more than 15 days sober together. And I've tried countless hmm. times and I've had sponsors and just the, this program just doesn't work for me. What else can I do? Well, what did you do? What did your program look like? I mean, I, I went to the meetings, I went to meetings, you know, I, uh, didn't really share because I'm kind of embarrassed to speak in front of people well, and, and okay. I got a sponsor, but you know, he really was like, you know, just, uh, uh, okay, just call me and we'll talk. And I, I just don't think AA or NA works. What do I do? Well, here, here's what, uh, I would say to you. Um, first of all, the meetings and the sponsor, those two things elements are very important, but those two things alone are not going to uh, um, treat the brain disease. Going to a meeting isn't going to 
treat the brain disease of addiction. It's one aspect. It's only one pill that we need to take. There's a, there's a, a protocol of medication that we need. The steps, the steps is the medicine. The meetings are the home of our fellowship. That's a place to find someone to help so that you can work the 12th step. The meetings are not the program. The program is in the book. The meetings are important. We have two. The, the book tells us that we are powerless, so we need to find a power by which we can live. And there are two sources of power that we find. The one, by doing this, these 12 steps, having the spiritual experience, that treats profoundly treats the brain disease. And the meeting is a place to find someone to help so that we can do service, which again, treats the brain disease. So were you just sitting in the meeting quietly? That's not gonna treat the brain disease. That would be like uh, if you had cancer and you went to an oncologist and you just sat in his lobby. You sat in the waiting room and listened to somebody talk about cancer on a television screen. That's not right. gonna and, treat you cancer. And, and then you didn't take the treatment. I mean, I, listen, I'm with you. You know, one of my favorite so maybe sayings. Try doing the whole thing. Try working the program. See what that does before you uh, contempt prior to investigation. The Herbert Spencer quote in the second appendix in the back of the book. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite sayings is, you know, I tell people you don't catch recovery through osmosis. Right. Right. You're, That's you're why not I say gonna, just sitting in the meeting isn't going to do it. Yeah. You're not going to sit next to somebody who's doing well and then automatically you start doing well because you rub their arm, right? This I is, also tell people when I'm teaching about this, I tell people, be aware that when you go to meetings, not everybody in the meeting is actually an alcoholic or actually an addict. There are people that use drugs and made a little bit of a mess and they somebody says, you need to go to NA or go to AA. They drank too much, but they're not, they don't actually have the disease. Those people could sit in the meeting and they'll, they'll happily tell you, I've been coming for 20 years. I never worked a step. I'm as happy as, you know, I'm just as happy as can be. And that could be true. They may not need the steps because they may not actually be an alcoholic. There are symptoms to the disease. If you have those symptoms, you have the disease. And if it's, if you've got this chronic disease and it's progressed, just like cancer does in stage four, you're going to need this. You're going to need that. You're going to probably need therapy. You might need trauma treatment, all of that to reduce cortisol production in the brain. So the brain stops firing signals to get high. And, you know, you uh, mentioned uh, beautifully neutralize that, that and the way of living beautifully neutralizes that, that uh, those stress hormones in the brain. You mentioned earlier the word powerless. Okay. And, that word is thrown around often. And I think that there has been a common misconception. You know, we talked about before you came on, Zach and I were talking about chronic relapsers, right? And that, right, that right. label that someone has given, which I'm sure was a label you were given in your 47 detox days and 19 treatment centers days. I was told I was a frequent recoverer. Okay. Well, that's, that's, a, I guess that's a little better than a chronic relapser. But when we look at the actual first step of the 12 steps, it says we admitted that we were powerless over our addiction or alcohol and our lives had become unmanageable. And to me, and hopefully I haven't been explaining this wrong for almost 26 years, but for me, that entire sentence is all about the past, 
right? Were, had been. And what I was taught is that once we come into recovery, we move from a state of being powerless to a state of being empowered. Okay. No doubt about 100%. Okay, and that doesn't mean just self-will, right? Sometimes right. we rely rely on powers greater than ourselves to help us stay empowered. But at the yes. same time, the old excuse of, I don't know what happened. I just picked up. I'm powerless, right? It's one thing when we're in the throes of our disease, if you are addicted to heroin, okay, or crack cocaine, and uh, we'll use crack because I know you like crack, and I used to like crack. I sure um, did. And by the way, you didn't have to drive to New York to get crack. I think that's ridiculous. Okay, there's there's crack here. But anyways, that's a whole nother <laughs> that's yeah. a whole nother topic. But you know, if you are coming down from a long crack run and you are fiending, okay, and I stick a cookie, right? Do you remember what cookies were? They were like three hundred dollars. Sure, yeah, yeah. There you go. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. I I put a cookie in front of you. What is the percent chance that you? Don't use that at that moment. Zero. That is powerlessness. Yeah, zero. However, if you have six months under your belt of sobriety and that cookie is placed in front of you, what is the percent chance that you use it? 50-50. Okay. You now have a choice. And when we have a choice, we are empowered, right? Powerlessness is we have no choice, right? right? And so the draw of being in recovery is actually empowering ourselves to learn that we could make good choices even when we don't want to. I could, I 100% agree with that. I just, I just wanted to put that out there because there's the people that talks there. about being that, that says you're powerless really is in the chapter, there's a solution. And at that point, whoever's reading the book hasn't worked the steps yet, they're still working on step one at that point in the book. So they're still powerless. All right. Speaking Uh, of books. I fully agree that it empowers us, no doubt about it. Unless, yes, at certain times, the amygdala hijacks the brain, and that could happen at any time if I'm not continuing to treat my disease. Yes, we can can slowly go backwards. I I equate it to being recovery is like going up an escalator that's going down. And as long as we keep moving forward, we're still going up, okay? Yes. And depending on how That's long you've been, this is just something I made up. Depending on how long you've been sober, you could be 800 stories high on this escalator. But if you slowly stop taking steps forward, you're slowly starting to slide back. The good news about recovery, right, is what you exemplified when you talked about driving to New York to get crack, which I think is preposterous because there's crack here but well we can i have all a, hang uh, on. I have a complicated agenda I, I was only i'm only messing with you but yeah, we yeah. could <laughs> in recovery as long as we don't fall off that escalator we can continue to start that forward momentum again 100%. right that, that that there's there's no time better than now if somebody is out there who's been in recovery for a long time that is struggling you could start walking again, right? And what do we do yes. to walk? Better meeting attendance, better talking to our sponsor, more prayer, more reading, getting back into the steps, right? That is what propels us forward. So that's what I'm doing currently. Restarted the steps. I'm vigorously seeking a new relationship with God. 
working on my my physical, mental, and and uh, spiritual health. And uh, man, it quickly turns around. I think that's awesome. Pretty, All right, so amazing. we we could talk forever. I want to get to a couple of things. You have a book. I do. What is that? Is. Walk the talk with step twelve. Walk Staying sober through service. That's okay. It. So the principle behind the twelfth step is service. Yes. Right. And I, we can't keep what we have unless we give it away. Tell us a little bit about yeah. your book. Well, um, it's a Hazelden book. It, uh, you know, the 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 twelfth step is the culmination of all the other steps. And it, it's a guide for how to work the 12th step in the 21st century, really, overcoming a lot of obstacles to carrying the message to others. It also has some history in it of, of how the 12th step was done by the pioneers. It has some of my story in it. Um, and then I interviewed a lot of people who are 12-step warriors, and they tell stories about their 12-step experiences, how it changes the brain, um, there's a little bit of a guide in there about how to work with a newcomer, some some tips on what, what you do when you go, go to do a 12-step call. That's what all the stories in the back of the book are about people's 12-step call experiences, where some drunk or addict reached out for help and they show up at their house or pulling them out of an alleyway or whatever, what that experience was like and how to handle that and how to how to do that with work with someone. And um, so that's pretty much it. It's a... Uh, a guide through step 12. Love that. How to work with other people. Zach, you've been very, very quiet today. And, and I don't know if it's because I'm dominating the fuck out of this conversation, but usually, yeah. Yeah. I want you to chime in a little bit. You know, we've talked about a lot of stuff. We've talked about powerlessness. We've talked about being empowered. We've talked about the 12 steps. We've talked about spiritual principles. We've talked about hitting bottoms and recovery. We've talked about people who have long periods of recovery that can slowly start to fade back. What are some of your thoughts, some of the things that you've taken away from today's show? One of the things that I find really interesting that happened within me during this broadcast is something you said about it changed my perception on with my closed mind about how how long you have to be in sobriety to sponsor people. The way you described it really opened my eyes because I I always had the mindset of, well, if you're not you know, like a year, you know, I was like that was the yeah. way I was brought up. So it, learning the history behind all this is quite fascinating because I never really thought. I mean, I somewhere in my thoughts were in the beginning of all this how did they go about sponsoring people because it must have happened quickly you know like within so and i just it's i'm curious as to when this whole year of sobriety like in the meetings when like anyone with over a year and working knowledge of the steps what available you know able to be a sponsor just that part and what you said really opened my eyes to it doesn't matter the length of time like as long as you have worked the steps right that because that's really technically the sponsor's sole job is mm -hmm. to say here's the steps yeah and, and when i take think them about, the book and give them the steps you know right and when i think about my experience with sponsoring 
that you know it, it, it's secular obviously or you know and so mm -hmm. if you have say 45 days and you start sponsoring people you're also then continuing the step work with them and then with right. your sponsor so it's just like a chain you know so it's 100 percent. yeah no. and of course your experience at 30 days sponsoring somebody is going to be very different than when you're teaching the steps after you have 10 years you know right. There, no. There's a, a depth to this thing that's so profound, as you know, that there's a message in there for somebody with 50 years and a different message for somebody with, with one day or a week or something. Right. You know? And I guess I, you know, with my closed mindedness, I base that on my experience because when I had 30 days, I was still very unwilling, you know, to, to do this right. stuff. You know, I was one of those people who, you know, my, my first bout of, let's say abstinence i i was the one of one of the people that went to meetings and hung out with sober people you know but i didn't do any of the work so after that experience i was like aa doesn't work for me you know because but i hadn't done anything i just closed my mind so i tried a lot of other avenues so when you asked that dr barry it was interesting because when you said do other avenues work you know i tried other avenues as half-assed as i did aa in the beginning so I would, you know, I don't know if other avenues work. All I know is that this avenue, when I give myself completely, works. Yes. Well, I think this is a good a good segue too. Um, it looks like Zach just froze. Either that, or he's very very still at the moment. Uh, <laughs> there he is. Still there right. he is. Yeah. <laughs> still no idea. Um, <laughs> so Zach talked about other pathways. What, what's your take Gary on, or if you know, and, and could share on other pathways like smart recovery, celebrate recovery. Um, you know, we're, we're, I don't want to go too far down a rabbit hole with all the mm -hmm. different pathways, yeah. but those are some of the more popular ones. You know, do you have any, uh, any info on that kind of stuff and, and, I went to Smart Recovery. It was very helpful. Um, I learned a lot. It was kind of like, to me, my takeaway from that it was like cognitive behavioral therapy, which is interesting because it was started by Albert Ellis, who also created CBT. Um, I, for me, that alone wasn't enough. I was such a sick addict. That didn't provide all that I needed. I, I learned some skills but again, that that didn't profoundly change my cortex. <laughs> you know, okay. I can look back at that now. That that alone, I think it works for a lot of people. But I think it it depends on how far your disease had progressed, how aggressive your treatment needs to be. I think of it like a cancer in the mind, because like you said when this started, we don't have a, a a drug and alcohol problem. We have a living problem. I have a thinking problem, and that leads to the drugs and the alcohol. So. Um, I need to treat that thinking, and there are certain things that profoundly change it. A Celebrate Recovery is a 12-step program, and as uh, I've not – I went to maybe two Celebrate Recovery meetings, and I have a limited understanding of it, but my understanding is that uh, Jesus is the higher power, and that works for a lot of people, and they do the 12 steps. So I think that can be very effective. Um, for me, I did 12 step and I went to smart recovery. Well, what do you to say to the, school. what do you say to the people who, um, and I've heard this before and I'm sure you have as well. The, the, 
AA meetings, NA meetings, it's religious based and I don't really believe in God and you guys are saying the Lord's prayer at the end of the meeting and in NA they're hugging and saying the serenity prayer and God is in the steps and you know I just don't think that's for me. Right. Well, first of all, I have a lot of friends who are atheists who get sober using the 12 steps and I was so fascinated by that. I studied uh, neuroscience, neurology. I wanted to understand the neurology of the addicted brain and discovered, again, as I was speaking about earlier, um, atheists can get sober using the 12 steps by substituting the old man in the sky with the beard for good orderly direction. If you're following the spiritual principles, you're still treating your cortex, practicing honesty, unselfishness, uh, anything that's going to reduce cortisol production in the brain, reduce stress in the brain, is going to produce recovery if, if that's sustained and, and they continue doing it. I really I see, you know, the medical illness. What's that? I had such an aversion to the word God. Like, yeah. again, my mind was very, like, I was closed-minded. I could not get past what had been taught to me for, sure. for you know, what... That was a big problem for me, too. I was, you know, I was taught the war god. I love you, but I'm going to beat you if, you know, I'm going to burn you alive if you don't do what I want you to do. I could not pray to that. Mm -hmm. and, and one of my sponsors was an elderly priest. And he said, take that capital G, that's a pronoun, and flip it upside down, make it a small g. Now it's a verb. A verb doesn't have a beard. It's an energy force that you tap into this energy that you connect to that's found within and you just take out to remove all the garbage with mm -hmm. steps four through nine yeah. and then and get your vessel clear and you'll connect to it and give it a shot what do you got to lose and he explained that prayer didn't matter what you were praying to it was the act of prayer changes how the brain functions it's you know it's funny it, it's it's funny too because i i was that person i'm very analytical and I always want to know how things work. And if I can't understand how something works, this is what I used to think is that I would have a really hard time using it, right? If I, I, I can. So, and, and one day I came up with this analogy, right? A cell phone, okay? Just a cell phone, right? And to this day, I have no concept whatsoever how I can dial a number. There's no wires attached to how I can dial a number and I can find the one specific person out of the almost 8 billion people on this planet to connect with. And they could be literally anywhere in the world. And I can talk this low and 2000 miles away. They can hear me in real time. Okay. Not only that, we can now FaceTime and see each other right live like even what we're doing right now is beyond my comprehension yeah okay it's unbelievable it's the wi-fi dust it's you know whatever the, oh. so <laughs> what, what what i learned was i don't need to know how something works to use it mm -hmm. i'm not a mechanic it doesn't stop me from driving my car even though i don't understand combustion in an engine and how engines work there are people who do, right? But to this day, and it's something I use every single day, I have 
zero clue how this works. I know how to work it, right? So, you know, when someone brings that up to me now and they talk about, because, you know, my sponsor had me start praying. And to this day, I, I pray every morning and every night on my knees. And I'm a Jew, right? And they used to say, like, Jews don't pray on their knees. I do what I'm told to do because it works for me. And I don't have to understand why it's working. Right. You know, I so, always tell my sponsees that you don't have to understand. First of all, if you think you understand God, you're probably delusional. You're not going to under. How could you possibly understand it? A God of our understanding, Doctor Bob, meant a God that you could tolerate, uh, a God that was kind and loving that you think might do some good things for you. And and I tell him you don't have to understand it to experience it. I I have a God in my life. I I just I don't know what else to call it, but I do experience it. But I sure don't understand it. I, I yeah, agree. With yeah. you. you don't have. To I was in. Works. I was in a you meeting. Use I use Google every day. I don't know how that works. To me, yeah. that's how I think of prayer is a lot like Google, but it's, you know. I was in a meeting uh, many, many years ago, and uh, every once in a while you hear like this profound quote, and you stick it in your little recovery toolbox. And this guy, may he rest in peace, his name was Tom. He said, I didn't know that I didn't know. Today I understand that I don't understand. I didn't know that I didn't know. Today I understand that I don't understand. And he was talking about, right, uh, you know, God. So, all right, before we close, because we're, we're pushing up to the end of the hour, you have a documentary that is premiering tomorrow night. I believe it's going to be at the Movies of Del Rey. There we go. Uh, there what it is. does that say? It's called Gary K. One Step at a Time. And the filmmakers are Academy Award-winning, Emmy Award-winning filmmakers. They followed me around for about 10 years. And um, it's a 10-year slice of my recovery. And it shows the steps in action through my life. And um, I wrote a play called Pass It On, An Evening with Bill W. and Dr. Bob. I played Bill W. And we were on tour with that. And some of that is in it. It starts out in Times Square 10 years ago. And then there's a gap where they, they had not filmed me for a few years and they came down to Florida to sort of wrap it up. So the ending of the film was filmed uh, here in Florida, uh, working with sponsees. Um, it's a beautiful film. And uh, it's been making the rounds at film festivals all nationally and internationally and, and getting great press. And I'm um, really proud of it. I, I'm even astonished that it exists, but there's an event. It's the Florida premiere, and there's a red carpet gala. It's at the Movies of Delray, which is West Atlantic, uh -huh. and uh, it's uh, 7421. Oh, sorry. There's the director calling me right now <laughs> on that amazing cell phone. Sorry about that. Um, and, um, yeah, there's a reception. It's from 7 to about 930 the tickets are $20. You can go on brownpapertickets.com and then put in Gary K one step at a time, and it'll take you to the event page, and you can buy tickets. There are only a handful left. There are probably about 20 tickets left. It's, we'll totally, it will be sold out. The event is also being filmed for future broadcast, and the film is also going to be used for distribution to recovery organizations all over North America to book uh, my lecture and the film. Uh, we're putting a tour together. We've got about seven cities lined up so far. And um, so that's one of the reasons we're doing the premiere as well, is to create that film. So if you come, you'll be in the film. 
Gary, and this is proceeds, been... proceeds go to Club Oasis in uh, Palm Beach Gardens. Wonderful. Yes. Copy that. I mean, Gary, this has been an honor and a privilege. You're it's been so fine. Thank you. Really? No, it's been really great conversation. It's Thank nice you. to talk. It's nice to talk recovery. You guys um, are outside, outside of a meeting. Um, you know, again, let's give another shout out to Zach, uh, who's celebrating his six years today. That's a big deal. Um, it sure is. Yeah, he was a pretty low bottom addict, you know. So if he could do this, any of the viewers out there can do this. If anyone's struggling, just remember, you got this, right? You got this. And, you know, there. what's the other saying, right? We could start our day over at any time. We could start our week over at any time. We could start our month over at any time, right? Recovery isn't about every day being roses. Um, life still happens to people in and out of recovery. Bad things happen to good people. All these things happen. But the steps you talked about today are the keys to survival that make bad days tolerable and great days amazing. They so, do. Uh, Gary, if you're thank out there you. and you haven't actually worked the steps and you don't think it works, do it first. Try it our way. And if you don't like the results, we'll gladly refund your misery. <laughs> Thank you, Gary. Thank you, Zach. Thank you. God bless you both. We'll Thank see you, you all next week. Thank you so much.